Hi, you're listening to the sermon recording podcast of Awaken Church. Awaken is a church of missional communities whose vision is to see individuals experience healing through the gospel, be raised to their fullest potential among community, and sent out to live a life on mission. You can find out more online at awakenvb.com. And if you live in Hampton Roads, we invite you to check out our worship gathering in the Haygood area of Virginia Beach, Saturday evenings at 5 p.m. Thank you for listening. So we're continuing in our James uh, series um, this week. And so if you've been following along with us, we're moving into James chapter 4 is where we're jumping into. And I know Philip has covered this already and Connie has covered this already, but I think it's important to uh, remember the intention that this is a letter that was written by James to Jewish Christians um, who are scattered throughout the Roman Empire. I think this is important because sometimes we read the Bible and we uh, view the Bible as if it was written for us specifically, right? As if the Bible was written thousands of years ago just for us to read and to be able to figure out how to make decisions and things based off of that. And I think that the Spirit speaks to us through the Scriptures. We can gain an incredible amount of wisdom by reading Scriptures. But it's important not to lose the situatedness of Scripture. It was written at a very specific period of time for a very specific audience, a very specific people. And if we lose sight of that, I think sometimes we can lose sight of what the author is trying to communicate altogether. And so we, the Spirit speaks to us through these things, but we never want to lose sight of who it was written to originally and for what purpose. The other thing before we really jump in is that because there is so, and I know, again, James and Connie said this, uh, James, Philip and Connie said the same thing about the book of James, that there's so much good stuff in this book that I'm not going to be able to cover the whole chapter in the time that we have together. I'm only going to make it, to be honest, about six verses into chapter four. So hopefully you guys are uh, following along with the devotional that Philip put together, and you guys are doing that alongside it, because that'll take you through excuse me, all the verses in chapter 4 that I don't get to cover, um, and there's really good stuff in there, so hopefully you guys are, are following along and, and, uh, and using that. So uh, let's jump right in, because you all know I like to keep you over time, so I'm going to try to do that as little as possible tonight. So let's start with just reading James chapter 4. We're going to go through verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to stop and, and kind of come back and tackle some of the things that we see in there. So let's read together, starting in verse 1. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. We're going to tackle this passage backwards tonight. Because when I first read this passage, uh, there was something that to me jumped out and, and kind of stirred up some tension in me. And I think that at least when I read Scripture, that's usually one of the questions that I ask myself when I'm reading through something and trying to figure out what is, what is God trying to teach me through this verse. I look for things that are either new, that maybe didn't occur to me before, or maybe there's, there's a tension point, something that I feel like I'm wrestling with in the passage. And I don't know about you guys, but for me it was verse 4 
uh, that created some tension in me. So, Cal, if you'll throw verse 4 back up there. It says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? This didn't create tension in me because I realized I've been pronouncing the word enmity wrong all my life. I've been saying enmity, which is not right. But that wasn't what created tension. It says, Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. I don't know if that creates, stirs up any kind of tension in you, but it did for me because we are a church of missional communities, right? And so we have a vision for missional communities and because it created tension for me because the goal of our missional communities is to embody the presence of God in a specific neighborhood or a specific network, but to bring the presence of God into a place and then invite others who don't know Jesus to participate into that community with us, right? We invite them in. And so to me, there's some tension there. How do we do that without being friends with the world, right? There's some tension there. It also created tension in me because if you guys have heard me speak before, I, I frequently speak against the tendency that the church has to isolate themselves and insulate themselves from the world around us right? And so we separate away from anything that could be considered worldly. And when we do that, uh, we lose any opportunity we have to engage or influence the culture around us when we insulate ourselves from it. And then yet I read this verse that says, if you love the world, you're an enemy of God. I, uh, again, tension in me because I consider it a positive thing if I'm talking to someone who's a Christ follower and they're running off a list of very worldly people that they have genuine friendships with, genuine relations relationships with, I consider that a positive thing. To me, their lives reflect what Jesus' life looked like, where he was called a friend of sinners, right? And so when I talk to people who can relate to me relationships, and not just, oh, I know this guy, right? But genuine friendships that they have with people who those inside the church would consider to be very worldly, I consider that something that's a positive. And so again, I have this verse that, at least reading it on the surface, seems to paint me and a lot of people that I care about as enemies of God. And I don't like that. So that's where this tension for me comes from. So I want us to camp here for just a minute, and then we're going to actually jump back to the beginning of the passage. So what is James saying here, right? What is he actually saying? James is using a, uh, a literary device that his readers would have been familiar with called hyperbole. And so what hyperbole means, if you're not familiar with that term, hyperbole is the use of exaggeration to prove a point. Okay, so you exaggerate your argument in order to get your point across. Uh, James' readers would have been familiar with this literary device. Uh, Jesus actually used it very regularly. We see Jesus using hyperbole to get his uh, point across. In Matthew 5, <clears throat> when Jesus is preaching, Matthew 5 says, uh, if your right eye causes you to sin, you should gouge it out, right? And if your right hand causes you to sin, it, cut it off because it's better for you to lose a part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into the fire, right? And we know that the people who heard Jesus, Jesus' followers, understood this to be hyperbole and not to be literal because we don't see a bunch of Jesus' followers with eye patches and prosthetic limbs following him around after the Sermon on the Mount, right? There's no pirate ministry among the early church that we're aware of, and I kind of feel like that would have made it to us if they say, if you follow Jesus, you have to cut your eye and hand off, right? Like, they already went like way overboard about circumcision. You'd have heard if they were asking you to chop other things off. And so we know that Jesus' followers, uh, <laughs> that got more of a laugh than I thought it would. We know that Jesus' followers understood that it was exaggeration, right? That he was not speaking literally. Another example, in Luke 15, uh, Jesus tells uh, the people who are listening, he says, if anybody wants to be my disciple, 
They must hate their father and mother. They must hate their spouse. They must hate their brother and sister, right? And so we have Jesus telling people that in order to be his follower, you must hate your family. And yet this stands in pretty strong contrast to the verses that we see in the Bible about honoring your mother and father, about caring for the elders in your family, that anyone who doesn't care for their uh, older parents or older members of their family is worse than a pagan, right? And so we have all these other verses that we got to understand, okay, they're not intended to be understood literally, right? Because if they were, then we have a really big conflict with what Jesus is saying and both what other scripture has says and what he demonstrates with his life and ministry that he lives out. So I, I believe James is using this same device, right? I think James is using hyperbole in this passage as well. And I think uh, the, the key part is, is what's at the beginning. What James is really trying to get to the heart of is right at the front, he starts it with, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. The relationship that God has with his people in the Old Testament and the relationship that Christ has with the church in the New Testament is... Uh, frequently described as, as a marriage-type relationship, right? Have you guys ever heard the church is the bride of Christ, right? And so what that means, again, this is more symbolism, right? Not a literal uh, phrase, but that the relationship that God desires to have with his creation, the relationship that Jesus desires to have with us is an intimate one, right? It's intimate to the point of being described as a marriage. And those of you who, who are married here know, and those who aren't married, I'm sure you can imagine that when you enter into a marriage, you kind of agree that there are certain parts of you that you would only give to that person. It would be inappropriate for you to share those parts of you with anybody outside of your marriage. And I'm not speaking purely physical sexual, right? But there are parts of you, the most intimate, vulnerable parts, that only get shared in the intimacy of that marriage relationship. And so, uh, you know, I love my wife, and I have other relationships. I have other friendships. But when we agreed to be married, it was a, a decision, a, a vow that was made that, hey, I'm only going to share these most intimate parts of me, these most intimate parts of our relationship with one another and not with anybody else. Which is why Heather doesn't really have to worry no matter how many times Philip flirts with me from the stage. <laughs> but this is exactly what James is talking about when he says adulterous people. It's not about enjoying the things of the world, right? This passage, James, is not coming at you if you enjoy Game of Thrones, right? That's not what this is about. The church frequently likes to take passages like this and say, if you enjoy anything that's worldly, then you're an enemy of God, right? And so this passage is not about necessarily the entertainment that you watch, the music that you consume. Uh, churches have used this uh, to speak against uh, Christians being able to enjoy alcohol. I'm not saying that those things are or anything is wrong with them inherently. That doesn't mean it's wise for you to consume all those things, but it doesn't mean that just blanket statement, you're an enemy of God if you enjoy anything that this world has to offer. So instead, James is talking about that, taking the most intimate parts of ourselves, the relationship that should be reserved only for God, for us to put God in this place in our life that is reserved for only Him. When we take Him off of that throne and put something else in its place, then we are an enemy of God, right? Well, that's what it means by this friendship with the world. It doesn't just mean having friends. It doesn't mean enjoying or desiring things that the world has to offer. It means when we take God off of the throne, off of the place in our hearts that should be reserved for only him, and replace it with something that the world has to offer, James says we have committed adultery, right? Another 
uh, phrase, which we're going to get into in a minute. There's another word for when we put something else in the place of where God should be, and that's idolatry. We make an idol out of that thing that we put uh, in a place where only God should be. And so, uh, just again, to close out this section, then we're going to jump back into the first uh, few verses. This is not this verse is not intended, and it may have been used against you like this in the past, so I want you to hear me very clearly. This verse is not condemning you for hanging out with people who don't know Jesus. It's not condemning you for the kind of art or entertainment that you consume. Instead, uh, it's, it's challenging us to make sure that we don't give our hearts away to the things that are not deserving of them, that we do not put other things that are not God in the place in our hearts that is reserved for only Him. <clears throat> so, what are those things that take up that space? What are those things that compete with us for wanting to be on the throne of our hearts instead of God? Uh, I now want to jump back to the beginning of chapter 4. And so we're going to read, uh, we're going to read uh, back through verses 1 through 3 is kind of where we stopped. And so going back through the beginning, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So we all have these strong desires within us that compete for the attention and the affection that we should be giving to God alone. Uh, some translations, instead of strong desires, they use the word lust. And when we hear lust, we think specifically of like a physical attraction, but all that lust really means is a strong desire. And so you can have lust for all different kinds of things. And so James, this is what he's talking about, that we have these desires in our heart that compete for the place in our hearts that only God should have. And so uh, there's a, a, a guy named Tim Keller, and he talks about these four idols, right? And again, we said an idol is anything that you put in the place of where God uh, alone should occupy in your heart. You put something else on that throne. And so Tim Keller talks about four idols, and we've used these before, but it's been a little while since we've talked about them. So I thought it would be, it would be worth bringing up again, both as kind of refreshing for those who haven't heard it in a while, and also for anybody who wasn't here the last time we talked about them. But Tim Keller talks about these four idols, that everything that might compete for your affection or compete for your attention and compete for your worship probably falls under one of these four things, okay? And so the four idols, they're on the screen behind me. The first one is power. And so power is a longing for influence or recognition. And so some of us, that's like the core idol that we, that we have that guides our motivations. It gives us our ambition and our drive is to be able to have influence and be recognized by a community of people, right? We want influence and recognition. Uh, for some of us, it is uh, control. Uh, and so control, it's not a, a longing for influence and recognition. It's a longing to have everything go according to plan. Right? Control. Not, has, how many of you guys are control freaks in here? You need to be in charge of everything that's happening. You don't like it when there's something going on in your life that you don't have control over. And so some of us, that's the thing that we seek after that we put on that throne above everything else is a desire to have control in our lives. For some of us, and I'm going to raise my hand and tell you this is the one I'm guilty of. You guys, may, many of you probably could have guessed, uh, is comfort. Comfort is a longing for pleasure. We don't want to do the things we don't want to do, right? We only want to do the things that we want to do. And so sometimes those things are more enjoyable. And so we put this desire to be comfortable, to, to have leisure and enjoyment and, and fulfillment above everything else in our lives. The last idol is um, approval. 
It's a longing to be accepted or desired. And so maybe that's the thing that guides all of your decision-making, that guides all of your ambition and your drives and your motivations, is above all else, I want to be accepted. I want to be desired by the people around me. I want their approval and seeking their approval. So Tim Keller talks about these four idols. Um, There can be other things, but usually the other things that we may strive for can fall into one of these four categories. And so what is the problem, right? Not just like, okay, well, it's idolatry and the Bible says don't do that. Okay, deeper than that, what is the real problem with when we make one of these four idols or multiples of these four idols, when we put them in the place that only God should be in in our hearts? The problem is all four of these things are insatiable appetites. It means that no matter how much you pursue them and how much you may get them, you can never fulfill that desire, right? How many of you guys have wanted something, a dream that you had, a goal that you had, and you set it up and that's all that you wanted and you worked for it and you prayed over it and you wanted to get it and as soon as you got it, it didn't meet every need that you had in your life, surprisingly, like you thought it would, right? And so this is something when you put these things as your guiding principles, the thing that you're seeking, above all else, you run into this ending, uh, unending cycle because you can never fulfill these appetites that you have. It's like drinking salt water when you're thirsty, right? You think it's going to solve the problem, but all it's doing is making worse because the more that you drink, the thirstier that you get. And so when we put these four things, uh, when we have our priorities out of whack, they can be incredibly dangerous. Now, these four things are not sinful inherently, right? They're not negative things. The problem is, do we pursue them in the right ways or do we pursue them at the expense of all else? And so the challenge that I have for us tonight is that we don't want to uh, make these things our guiding principle, make the things that is the priority. And instead, if we make what should be on the throne of our hearts the most important thing, then we can enjoy these other things as byproducts of that. And so they don't take over our lives where they're the things that we're searching for, but we still get to enjoy them when they come along as long as we've made the main thing the main thing, right? How many sailors? I know we have sailors in the room, maybe less than we normally do tonight, actually. So how many of you guys are familiar with, uh, you don't have to be a sailor to be familiar with this, but how many of you are familiar with this idea of the North Star, right? You guys have heard of the North Star before? But the North Star holds a special significance uh, when you're talking about sailing, Uh, Does anybody happen to know why the North Star is so important to sailors? What? It's what guides them, right? It's It's the thing that they, if they can see that North Star, right, then they can orient them everywhere else they need to go, right? It's the star that when they're out at sea and when they can't see anything else, as long as they can keep their eyes on the North Star, then they know where everything else is. It's kind of a reference point. It's that guiding point, right? And so we obviously don't really use that today because we have things like satellites and GPSs, but obviously those things will get you into trouble if you're one of the families that ended up in Pungo soccer camp week. Uh, You know the GPSs can fail you uh, as well. But this idea of the North Star (coughs) is that as long as you can see it, as long as you know where it is, you can orient yourself rightly. What happens if you take some other light in the sky and you say, that's the North Star, and you make that your reference point, you make that your guiding principle? Where you end up is not going to be where you want to be because you've oriented everything else around the thing that was never supposed to be the reference point to begin with. Is that making sense? And so this is what happens when we take something that was never intended 
to be our guiding principle. It was never intended to be at the highest point of our hearts and in our lives. And we set something else up there that wherever we end up, the destination is not where we want it to be because we have failed to make the main thing the main thing, right? And so what is the main thing? It's seeking God's kingdom and his calling on our lives. As long as we do that first and foremost, then we can enjoy the other things in this world as byproducts, but they're not the thing that drives us. They're not the thing that pulls us. Um, as a pastor, uh, I didn't realize that this was going to be part of the job description, at least to the extent that it has been, but I've ended up in situations where I'm regularly sitting down with people as they're trying to make difficult decisions, right? And the thing that I was unprepared for is that 90% of the time when they ask you in to make that difficult decision, they've already made up their mind already. They just want you to hear their justification. They're not actually interested in what input you may have into the conversation. But I have sat down with people who are uh, thinking about a move, right? Thinking, thinking about moving. And when you ask them why, they share things like, well, you know, we just need a change of scenery. Um, uh, the, the prices, the, the, the real estate market is better out there, right? Things like that. And so when those kind of things are the guiding principle, when you're not stopping to think, okay, what is God doing in me and my family right here, right? And I'm not villainizing moving. I'm, never saying, I'm not saying there's never a good reason to move. But when you don't even stop to think, what is God doing in my life and in my family's life right where he has me, then you run the risk of making a move and then ending up feeling dissociated, disconnected, no community because you're in a new place and you've given up what God was doing in your life right there. I've sat with so many people who are looking at uh, job changes, right? And looking at a new job, the decision is almost 90% of the time is financial. But sometimes it's driven by ambition or other things. And the thing is, if you make all of your job and vocation decisions with that in mind, how can I make the most money? How can I get the most status? Where can I get the most upward mobility? Then as soon as you get something, you're immediately looking for what's your next thing, right? There's no way to satisfy that desire, Rather than looking at your job and your place of vocation and saying, okay, what does it look like to live out the calling that God has on my life in this place? And so when we do those things, uh, we make those, uh, the, the kingdom of God and his calling on our lives, our north star, and our primary goal, then everything else becomes a byproduct. Uh, just to wrap up, I want to go back to, uh, we're going to end on uh, verse 2 and 3, the back half of verse 2 and verse 3. And so, uh, Kel, if you'll throw that on there. Yeah, I want to uh, just finish with uh, the end of verse 2. You do not have because you do not ask God. And then verse 3. When you ask God, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. James is saying they do not get what they want because they ask with the wrong motives. And that they, uh, they may spend what they get on their pleasures. What this, doesn't, what this does not mean is that you can get whatever you want by praying for it. You just have to figure out the right way to ask, right? James says, well, you don't get what you want because you didn't ask. And when you ask, you didn't ask the right way. So for some of us, you say, okay, reverse engineer those statements. That means I can get what I want if I ask for it in the right way, right? But the thing is, asking with the proper motivations means not seeking power, comfort, control, approval, right? When you ask and those are your core motivations— those are not things that advance God's kingdom. Those are things that build up your kingdom. And so asking with the right motivations means praying, God, how can I advance your kingdom and live out the calling that I have on, on, on that, the calling that you've given me to live out in my life? That when you ask and you pray for things with those proper motivations, then God will give us what we ask for. 
So to move into some time of discussion, I've got a few questions uh, here for you. And so we don't have them on the tables this week. I know usually we try to do tables and screens. Um, tonight we're just going to have it on the screen. So I think wherever you are, you can probably uh, see the screen. But the questions that I, that I have for you that we're going to look at, which of the four idols, again, power, control, comfort, approval, which of those four idols, if I'm not careful, can cause my adulterous heart to put them in the place in my life that only God should have? So which of those four idols are you most likely to fall into the temptation of pursuing that as your primary goal instead of pursuing God's kingdom and his calling for your life? Question number two, how likely am I to make the four idols the primary goal instead of a byproduct? Right? Those things are not wrong to enjoy, not wrong to desire. They just don't occupy the place in your heart that only God was meant to occupy. Then you can enjoy them the way you were intended to. What pathways would help give me better perspective? This is question number three. And keep me chasing the right things. So you guys know the pathways that we walk through. And uh, as I was going through and saying, okay, what pathway kind of ties with this? I came up with several. So instead of telling you a specific pathway, I want to challenge you. What pathway do you feel like walking in would help give you the perspective and keep you chasing the right things instead of the wrong things? And so those are the questions that we've given you to start conversation. You may not get all of those three. Uh, that may kind of start you off on like a tangent and you go off talking about something else really important. But we want to give you these three as conversation starters. I would encourage you, we only have about 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes. Uh, I would encourage you to try to get to number three. So even if you don't get through one and two, really try to get to number three because I think that's where the takeaway is, where we go from being, okay, head and heart and we get into hands, right? How can I actually put this into practice in a way that will be transformative in my life? So we're going to put on some music, challenge you to discuss this with your table, and in about 15, 20 minutes, we're going to get together and we want to hear what you guys talked about. So be thinking what you might share when we all come back together. Hey, so... <laughs> Huh. We're going to move into uh, some discussion time, panel discussion time. And so uh, we would just love to hear what were some of the things that you guys discussed at your table, uh, some of the questions maybe that you guys had, or how did you respond to some of the questions, or maybe your conversation went in like a whole different place and it just was a good thing that you guys want to want to share. I would love to, you know, I got the great discussion that we were having at my table, but I didn't get to hear all the cool things that you guys talked about at your table. So, uh we would just love, we've got Connie and Philip. We'll come around and bring a mic to you if you have something you want to share that you thought was valuable uh, or fruitful coming from your table discussion. Sean's hand is up. I see Sean. Do you need me to hold it? That's even more. Control. That's it. Yes. So mine's control. <laughs> Surprisingly, that's not comfort. Uh, but yeah, mine's uh, definitely control. It's hard for me sometimes to uh, just turn it over to somebody else because, um, and it's really funny because of how scatterbrained I am, but I have this thing where it's like, if I have control of this thing, uh, even if it doesn't get done, like I know who to blame. Uh, so like, you know, I can just take responsibility for it. But like, if I turn it over to somebody else and it doesn't get done, then I have this thing in the back of my mind where it's like, well, if I had done that, even though it might not have, anyway, I, control is mine. So. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. He's a mumbler. <laughs> uh, for my life, bombs go off quite a lot. So I do my, I'll have a trigger, 
And um, now that I have everybody engaged, I want to share real quick. Um, Kira is, we found a rehabilitation place in Galax, which is full-time as opposed to the one they have in here in Virginia Beach, which she tried, which is seven days, which is a joke because, but um, I would have constant triggers of the floor dropping, and then I feel like I'm flailing, so there I overcompensate with trying to control, so therefore I can stay in my comfort zone. Mm. So when you had said that, the comfort issue, I thought, that is... That's what I do. I want to stay in control because of the bombs constantly going off for years. So I can try to stay comfortable. And then you throw in, when you're a couple, as I'm processing this, I feel like uh, complete transparency. We're, our, let's just say our spiritual communication with each other is clogged. So we both are control freaks, mind for, to, would give to pick a reason, <laughs> and um, so I'm constantly trying to claw th through this process right now, thinking, "Wow, I really want to try to stay comfortable because I'm. I feel like I have to fight for it to have some type of um, normality and my sanity." And I'm thinking, "Am I idolizing that comfort, or is that is that healthy to?" strive to want to, to get there. So when you were a couple, I'm thinking we're not even praying together to say, hey, let's hear, let's pray together and hear what each other think, uh, not thinks, <laughs> I can hear what he thinks, but um, <laughs> to hear what the Lord says and then come back and say this was laid upon my heart. And we did have a situation where we were dragging our feet on something and I could feel him dragging his feet. And I thought, you know what, let's just do it this other way. It's going to be more mellow, it's going to be least expensive, and really, what is the goal? Because I was thinking, why do, why are we, why, why, why are we like, oh, we got to do, but I thought, no, we can do this other thing for free, <laughs> and it'll be better, because I had to be sensitive to the fact that he was dragging his feet, and kind of relinquishing some control, he was seeking me out, like, maybe you see another side to this, mm. and so when I'm seeing the idle things, I'm thinking, I do all of that. Mm. And it's all for one goal, and that's comfort. Mm. Okay. I think that raises up a good question. I don't know if Connie or Philip, if you guys want to uh, respond to it, but at what point we, I, you know, I talked about these things are not inherently negative, right? A lot of times they're, they can be healthy things that if we pursue them too much, or if we put them in the wrong priority, they can become unhealthy and they become negative. So do either of you guys have something to speak to that? How, do you, how can you tell when something is going from like a, something that's healthy to something that has become an idol or become unhealthy? Um, I'm going to speak to what I know and what I'm learning. And for myself, I feel like we all kind of have these idols, but we don't realize we have these idols. I was connecting them to my personality and what motivates me to do the things that I do. And so control is natural for me because my personality naturally wants things to be in order and perfect and all of that. So once I knew that about myself, then I could stop the cycle from repeating. And so, yeah, stepping out and realizing, taking time to actually evaluate, okay, this is my idol, but why is it my, my idol? Why do I do the things that I do? Okay, this is why I do the things that I do. So next time it happens, I see it happening, see it coming, and I can say, no, 
that's not the direction I want to go. So naturally, we all live in autopilot. It's stopping the autopilot and not letting it control us. So the idols control us until we name them and learn to see them happening in our lives. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, for me, like, uh, even, this is silly, but even a couple weeks ago, I wore a hat here. And Nicole looked at me and she said, since when do you wear hats? And I said, I don't wear hats because I don't know the rules to wearing hats. So I'm not going to wear hats because I don't know how to do it right. So that was like my little step out of, so that's what I've been doing lately is claiming things, naming things that I don't do because they're uncomfortable and trying to do that instead. And it's really hard and I don't like it because I can't do it well. I don't like to do things I can't do well. So this is getting off topic, I don't think, I think, but yeah. But so, yeah, that's how I get out of my comfort zone. I don't do it all the time because then I lose control. (laughs) I think for me, like my, um, I process through most, like all these pathways are individual, right? They're personal pathways that we walk on. But for me, so many of them flush themselves out communally. And so... As I think about these four, um, approval is the one that I often starts the spiral. We talked about like, they're all connected, right? We've all kind of mentioned that at various points. Um, but for me, what starts is the approval one. And I think when I seek out people, when I start noticing there's insecurities or places that I'm feeling weak in certain areas on, if I can notice it ahead of time, going and finding people that now they hold me accountable that the accountability pathway comes to mind, but also the relationship. You know, the relationship one is people who know me well and I know them well. So we have a level of vulnerability and trust that I can come and say, I'm feeling really lonely right now. And so my tendency is to want to overcompensate with approval in these certain areas. So I think we all have to have people in our life that we can be honest about our personal process, but also sit in a room with them and, and, and talk through these things as well. Um, it wasn't even the pathway that I even chose for me to work through this, it was worship. But I think about just several of these pathways as you identified that have to move sometimes from being personal to communal. And that's where God often does his best work because we bring in other eyes and ears and mouths to the process to kind of help walk it through with us. Yeah. Adrian and I were talking about how prayer is good for us because of control. And I actually, this might sound weird, but I actually bought myself prayer beads and I pray through them and through each bead on a pretty regular basis now because it helps ground me, helps me realize that I'm not in control. There's someone above me. There's, you know, God's in control. It helps me to um, clear my mind and just focus on what it is I need to focus on. So that pathway, just adding the beads to that pathway has been really helpful for me. So yeah, just to close out before we, we have some worship and we uh, close out for the evening, uh, does anybody else want to speak to that third question where, you know, Philip and Connie both just, well, I think Philip shared like four because he's an overachiever because he wants people to like him. But we all... Uh, <laughs> communally, communally like me. <laughs> but is there, is there one, for one of you guys, was there a pathway that you thought yeah, this is the idol that I struggle with. Maybe, again, they're connected, but this is the one I see in my life right now. And so I feel like this is the pathway that walking in this will help me bring that back into perspective, back into the priority that should be in my life. Does anybody want to share an answer to that question three before we wrap up? Raymond? People who listen to this podcast are going to show up going, who was Raymond? And they're never going to guess that you're Raymond. (laughs) All right, we, uh, 
our pathways we were talking about was um, a lot to do with um, uh, just being, for, for me, it was Scripture, mm. you know. I don't spend time in Scripture like I should. But if I did, that would help me focus and meditate on that to bring God back to the forefront. Mm. And, uh, and that would definitely take care of a lot of that other silly idle stuff, you know what I mean? You know, just putting him in the front, meditating on his word, and being able to help others in the process. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I think we got one over here. I think for me it's accountability and just being able to uh, let people know when, you know, I don't have it together and when I do need help. Because um, I'm not really good at that. I'm not good at asking uh, people for things. And also just generationally in my family, it's never been, sharing feelings has never really been our strong suits. It's usually just like, I'm going to keep all my feelings right here and then someday I'll die. <laughs> and so like being able to be open and honest with people when I'm struggling with those things, like is something I need to work on, I guess. Great. Do you remember? Um, probably I chose uh, like approval and some. I feel like approval would most likely go with like accountability, but I'm not sure exactly why. Who wants to help out Malachi? How can walking in the pathway of accountability help if you struggle with needing people's approval? Um, I feel like for me, if, if that was um, one thing that I struggled with more, um, a lot of mine, the reason I, un accountability makes me uncomfortable is because I don't want to talk to people about why I'm struggling like I feel like a lot of times they need to hold me accountable for things that I'm you know doing wrong or not you know doing a good enough job of and but in order for them to hold you accountable you have to admit to those things and if you're constantly seeking approval you don't want to talk about things that you are struggling with so accountability forces you to face up to hey I have I'm not perfect without accountability you can just pretend you're perfect all the time but accountability means you have to show you're not perfect, which helps with that idol of approval because people see you for who you really are, which is not perfect and still really awesome. Um, cool. I'm going to close this in prayer unless anybody else has a final question or anything else they want to they ask or, or anything else they wanted to share. Uh, I'm going to close this in prayer, and then uh, worship team is going to come up and lead us in a couple songs, and then uh, we'll call it a night. Um, so let me close us. And then, uh, yeah, we'll worship together and then uh, we'll close out together at the end of the night in some prayer as well. <clears throat> Spirit of God, we thank you for being present with us this evening. We thank you for uh, moving in us as we uh, discussed the things in our lives that if we're not careful, um, they take the place in our hearts that was only reserved um, for you and uh, that we commit adultery in our hearts by sharing those things with things of this world rather uh, than keeping those things reserved for our relationship uh, with you. And so we thank you for guiding our discussion. We pray that you would go with us, that the things that we talked about would not be something that we share at a table and then 
uh, 10 minutes down the road, it's completely out of our minds and no longer a priority for us. So we pray that you would linger, that the things that we talked about this evening would linger, that we would go from uh, a place of head knowledge, of understanding uh, what it is that we're supposed to do, uh, to heart knowledge of saying, this is what God you're asking of me specifically, but also putting that into practice with our hands, that we're going to actually do the things that you've called us to, that we're going to actually do the things in our lives that bring, uh, bring fruit and bring health and bring uh, transformation. And so I pray that we would be able to live those things out uh, in our lives, that we would be able to live those things out among our missional communities, that we would challenge and lift each other up and, uh, as we spur one another on towards uh, good works, as your word says. So uh, we pray that you would just be with us. Uh, and now as we lift you up in worship, we pray uh, that you would inhabit the praises of your people. We pray that you would be with us, that your spirit would move in us as we close in worship this evening. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.